Well, over the past year, off and on, I have preached from Romans chapter 1. I've preached verse 1, and then I've preached verse 2, and then I've preached this week, verses 3 and 4. And then even at one portion, I preached somewhat on verse 5, and I'll bump into verse 5, just enough to make this statement off of verse 5, that as we looked at it earlier in the week, we noticed that there were three things about verse 5. First off, there was a gift that was given, and the gift, it says, we have received, and the gift is twofold, grace and apostleship. The grace appointing at salvation, is, and then the apostleship, though there are no apostles in this day and age, there certainly are those that are sent, and apostles were ones that were sent, and so everybody that's born again is a sent one, there's no doubt about that. And so I dealt with the topic in that, in that thank God for the grace in salvation, and then thank God for not only the gift of salvation, but the gift of service, and I dealt with those two things. And then secondly, what not only did we see the gift as God gave us the gift that was twofold, then we see the purpose that He gave the gift to us. And the Scripture says in verse 5, for obedience to the faith. And so we see that God gave it for obedience. And I need to make this statement because Satan is a master at this. Satan is a master at having two counterfeits on this obedience to the faith. He would be happy if you had obedience without faith or if you had faith without obedience. Now, Satan would love for you to take either one of those, but I hasten to say that both of those go together so severely that when you finally say, I am going to by faith go to God, it will stem obedience. A true faith will stem that obedience. But Satan offers those kind of counterfeits that would love to take away one or the other. Matter of fact, I'll hasten to say this, that churches need to have both their doctrine, they need to have their separation, and they need to have their compassion, all three together made right. And when the three are not together right, you've got a problem. When all you have is your doctrine right, but your separation's not right, you've got a problem. When all you have is your separation is right, but your doctrine's not right, you've got a problem. Or if you have your doctrine and your separation right, and your compassion is off, you've got a problem. So Satan is a master at offering counterfeit in this, in this capacity. So we see the purpose for the, for the gift. God gave us a gift. It was grace, salvation, and then it was apostleship, meaning the opportunity to serve, to be sent. The purpose for the gift was that, that we would have obedience to the faith. And then the one that gains the glory in verse 5 is point number 3, and it is for His name. All is to be done to the glory and honor of God. We don't need another pianist that can go out here and can somehow become elaborate at the piano and somehow take all the glory upon themselves. We don't need that. You'll let me not stop there. We don't need another Sunday school teacher that can take all the glory for their teaching in a Sunday school class upon themselves. You'll let me not stop there. We don't need another preacher that'll step into the podium and preach to the the glory of self. We don't need another one. We have right now almost lost a nation because the church has become so glorified within itself that we are on the verge of losing a nation and pride is at the very center of that. It's time for God's people to throw self down by the grace and power of a holy God and rise up to serve. And if anything's going to be done, it's to be done under His power and under His glory. 
Now that's what's so vital of an issue. Now we come to verses 6 and 7. When we come into verses 6 and 7, Paul says, keep in mind it's still all one sentence, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. Now under this heading, there are two callings that can take place. There's the calling to you this evening, if you're here without Jesus Christ, there is the calling that God would call you unto himself. He says, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So then we see also God says that he he told the church in Revelation 22 to say, come. Christ said, come. There's an invitation being uh, being given. There's a calling of the lost to come unto Christ. There's a calling of the lost to yoke up with Christ. Now, I quoted Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, and just let me go ahead and put it in its context just for the sake of it. I I just then preached it as if God was speaking to the lost. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Now, he does say that, but in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, he's not talking to the lost. He's talking to the children of Israel. Just to be sure I'm keeping it in its context, in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, they were doing everything God said do. They were worshiping, they were making sacrifices, they were uh, having their, their feasts, they were having all the things that God said do, but God said in Isaiah chapter 1, whatever verse I don't know, prior to verse 18, He said that they're doing it for vanity's sake, they're doing it for a show, they're not doing it to be obedient to God, they're not doing it to the glory of God, and when that took place, God spoke to the church, or actually to the children of Israel, and He said, come now and let us reason together. Now, pretending to be a Christian will get you in a heap of trouble. It sure will. Pretending to be a Christian, if you're not a Christian, first off, going to get you in hell, and you're going to stand before God and say, hey, I did this, 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 and this, but let me get on with the point. The point I'm after is on, on this topic, as I've said it, is God has issued a calling. Now to those that are saved, God's got a calling for you. He's got a way, a place. He's got a calling for everybody. If you could say this evening, I know for sure I'm saved. I've trusted in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I've asked him to forgive my sin. I've placed my life in his hands. If you can say that this evening, then there's not a shadow of doubt. God's got a calling for you. He's got a purpose for you. The question is, is do you know what his calling is? Now let me state this, youth, and I want to state it to you. There's many of an adult that have wasted their lives away. They have gone all the way even to the grave itself and never one time bothered to seek the calling of God for their lives, though they be saved. That is a major tragedy. Would they not go to heaven, Brother Snodderly? Yes, they'll go to heaven. But oh, they could have taken others with them. And they could have gone with with so much more joy into the very presence of Christ. And so I, I encourage you greatly that if you do not know the calling of God for your life, do not waste your life. We've got enough people in America that's found out how to make money. We've got enough people in America who's found out how to get positions. We've got enough people in America who has found out how to gain prestige amongst other people. We are needing people in the churches today that know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior to find a holy altar and start telling God, I'm yours, do with me as you see fit. I'll follow where you lead. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll say what you want me to say. And then let me address the adults. 
If for somehow you have come to whatever age bracket you are in and you have never bothered to know the will of God for where you are, then I encourage the adults. You say, but Brother Snodderly, look at my age. Let me give you a, a, a pointing at in an illustration. I remember I was in a church and an elderly woman was there, 70, if I remember right, seven years old, a 77-year-old woman, and she was coming off the field from Brazil, and she stated to this, her supporting church, she said, God is leading me to a new field. She dealt with the deaf, and she said, God is leading me to a new field, and this 77-year-old woman was going to have to be, if she's going to speak, she's going to have to learn a new language, and she was going to, at 77 years old, she was seeking the will of God for her life. Somebody say, ah, she'll probably die before she learns the language. If it's the will of God, she get there, she'll die right with God, if that be the case. She'll die right with God. So we see that there are two callings in verse 6 that I've made reference to. To the lost, it's a calling to be saved. To the saved, it's a calling to serve. Now we move into verse 7. And in verse 7, there are three things that I want to point out quickly. First off, you'll see that he's giving a location. And in this location, in this case, it's Rome. And he says to all that be in Rome, so let me make this statement. It's not just enough that you say what God wants you to say, but you must say it where God wants you to say it as well. I remember the time that we went to Peekskill, New York, and this preacher had never been street preaching before. And so we're there in Peekskill, New York, and, and we were getting ready to go out soul winning with several of the teens. And while we're out with several of the teens and the pastor and myself, we came to this big park area and we're passing out tracts and witnessing to people. And while I'm standing over on the side over here somewhere, I see my son James and he's over here across the park, but I could see over there. And there's this little short woman, looks to be in about her 60s, has a turban about her head and she's bouncing around James. Now, I'm standing there while the preacher's witnessing, watching this little woman bounce around James. And so when he got done witnessing, I said, Pastor, I think we ought to go over there and see what's going on. And so we stepped over there, and as we got there, here's this little woman bouncing around James. And I kept listening to her as she bounced around James. And every now and then, she'd speak in English, and every now and then, she spake in something I did not know what. And finally, she settled down, and she looked at me, and I said, are you for us or against us? And she didn't say anything that I could understand. But she kept on her bouncing. Finally, she stopped and looked at me a second time. And I said, ma'am, are you speaking in tongues? And she said, yes. I said, well, 1 Corinthians 14 said, let the women keep silent. And boom, buddy, she was angry. And it was on. This lady is now screaming at the top of her lungs and it seemed to have some kind of an amplification. That was an amazing amplification. I remember as this pastor was probably, he was a young pastor and I thought to myself, isn't this marvelous? First time out for this young pastor. We're going to be doing some street preaching here in a few minutes and here we got this situation and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit moved on that pastor. He said, all right, everybody. He said, make a circle right here. He said, I want us all to get into prayer. So we all got in the middle of it and we bowed on the, on the sidewalk right there and we began to pray. We began to pray that God would defeat the very powers of Satan. That little old 
old woman still bouncing. She'd get in the middle of us and she would start tearing up tracks and throwing them at us. And she'd throw her hands at us and she'd say something along the lines of, of, of uh, hexes on you and curses on you. And she kept on doing this and doing this. And finally we got done praying and she is still going. And the pastor, as, as we were walking this direction, and in my mind, as I was saying in my mind, Lord, please, don't let us quit. Don't let us quit. Don't let us give the ground back to that lady. And the pastor turns and he looks at me and he says, Brother Snodderly. He said, do you remember preaching on out of Mark chapter 5 about that demonic man? And I said, yes, sir. He said, right over there is a half wall. Would you mind climbing up on that half wall and just pace back and forth there and preach that message here today? And I said, well, yes, sir, I'll be happy to. So I got there and I began to pace back and forth preaching against demons. That little old woman's right at my feet, hollering and screaming right at my feet. I remember as I kept on preaching and kept on preaching, I noticed all of a sudden up here somebody coming out of the balcony, out onto their balcony. And all of a sudden we got people looking down on us as we're standing there preaching and she's shouting. And then here comes a car and he pulls up at the side of the curb and some lady gets out of that car and she comes over and joins that little old lady. Now I got two women screaming. Listen, if it's not bad enough to have one woman angry with you, you get two women angry at you. You got serious problems and so all of a sudden here i got two sitting here hollering and then the police show up police come over to us and they say guys you're gonna have to be quiet and over there's that little old woman still screaming bouncing and hollering and they're telling us to be quiet and so we talked a little bit and finally we got the okay to continue preaching and I began to preach as I was going back and forth and I kept on going back and forth preaching and I was saying, Lord, please, would you give me more power to preach than she has from her false God to be able to scream and holler the things of, day, of Satan and God just let me keep on preaching and finally I saw that little old woman wind down somewhere and go over there and sit down and so I felt like a, a few minutes after that it was alright to, to be able to settle down and stop the preaching at that point. The point point I'm after is, is this. It's not just enough to speak, but we got to have the location God wants as well. We've got to have the location God wants. He said to all that be in Rome. Secondly, then there is the reception that's shown in this verse. He says, beloved of God. Now that's a reception that shows God receives folks into his family. Is that not a wonderful thing? It was in California uh, just recently, and maybe I told this, but I'll tell it again because I'm not sure. I remember as, as uh, James and I went out and were visiting with this one woman, and she bowed her head and she prayed three sentences that are along this line. She said, God, would you please, and she said, God, I'm turning to you. Lord Jesus, she said, I'm turning to you. I have nowhere else to turn. She said, secondly, would you forgive me of my sin? And thirdly, she said, would you place me in your family? Now, buddy, that'll get the job done if it's a, with a sincere heart. And notice that last phrase she said, would you place me in your family? That's a reception. The reception of being received by God into his family. What a wonderful thing it is. See, this evening you say, preacher, you don't know how awful I've been. You don't know how bad I've been. You don't know how, how, how obstinate I've been to, to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I want to issue the gospel, the good news to you tonight, that he'll receive you if you will but receive him and come unto him. What a reception we have. And then we see the position that's there in verse 7. And the position is found in verse 7 as we see it saying that they are called to be saints. Called to be saints. Now, if you were to look for uh, the word saints and kind of its origins and stuff of that nature, it definitely has a tie to a similar word, sanctified. 
definitely has a tie to that. And so if you're a saint, then you're sanctified. Sanctified means you're set apart. And so most assuredly, we have the position of being a saint in the... You say, I thought you became a saint sometime down the road after, maybe even after you die or something of that nature. No, you become a saint the instant that you trust Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. That's the instant you are a saint. You are set apart. You're no longer of this world. You're no longer going with the broad path that's going to descend into hell itself, which brings me to the topic that I know God wants me to deal with this evening. I want to deal with this topic in conclusion, this topic of hell. See, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. And when Christ spoke, he said this. He said in Luke chapter 12 and verse 5, and I'm just going to quote it. This is a tract that I put together back about a year or so ago. And I'm just going to preach off this tract for the remainder of the evening. Christ said in Luke chapter 12 and verse 5, But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, Fear him. Now you're going to have to let me go over here and see if what I said was right or not. And it was. Alrighty. So he says that we're to fear him who hath power to cast into hell. The question is, is who is that? I've had people say, well, that's Satan. We should fear Satan. Satan has no power to cast anybody into hell. He has power to tempt you so that you don't go to Christ and so that you would be cast into hell. But Satan has no power to cast into hell. Who is it talking about when he said, Fear him who hath power to cast into hell? He said, Yea, unto, unto, I say unto you, fear him. He's talking about the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. He's talking about himself. You better fear me. I have the power, Christ is saying, to cast people into hell. Now, that's what he's saying. Now, the question is to start with this evening, what is hell? What is hell? Well, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22, it says it this way. It said, But whosoever shall say, Thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Now you say, Well, what's it mean, thou fool? That's not the part I'm wanting to deal with. I'm wanting to deal with this topic that he said shall be in danger of hell fire. So first off, what is hell? Hell is a fire. It's a fire that burns. It's a fire that is an unquenchable fire. And go over with me to Luke chapter 16. And look down into verse 23, if you would, with me, please. In Luke chapter 16, we see here, And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And then in verse 24, And cried and said, I'm in Luke 16, 24, And said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Now let me state this, Aaron has studied this out and he preached it, and so I'm telling you what I've got from him and his studies. When it says in verse 19, there was a certain rich man, and it's this rich man that is cast into hell in verse 23, he said something along this line, which was clothed in purple and fine linen in verse 19, that this was the, the attire of a priest. And the point to be had on that topic is that it's very much possible to go through life 
sitting on church pews, standing behind podiums, playing instruments, teaching classes, and never have come to Jesus Christ to, and personally seek Him as He has sought you to be your Lord and Savior. It is very much possible for somebody to play the game, look like they're saved, sound like they're saved, talk like they're saved, and not be saved. Now, I'm not trying to make anybody that is saved doubt their salvation. But if God will be my helper, I sure would love to be used to pull the mask off of those that are lost this evening trying to parade as if they're saved. Now, go on back down to verse 23. It's this rich man in verse 19 that's in hell in verse 23. I want it to be clearly noted that when he died, he was immediately in hell. Immediately he was in hell. There was no in-between. There was no limbo. There was no purgatory. There was an immediate death here in hell there. That's exactly the way it went. And it says in hell, he lift up his eyes. Notice what happened to him. He says, being in torment. Do not let these people that are trying to tell us, Oh, I'm going to hell. I'll have a beer party with my buddies in hell. Let me take, just give about two or three points on that to shoot that thing down. First off, if you take some of the alcoholic beverages with you to hell, you're going to do nothing more than to ignite the flame greater. Second off, if you go to hell, the torment will be so great, I believe you could care less if it was a party going on or not. Third off, in utter darkness, you're going to have an extremely difficult time finding your buddies in hell. Don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself. It is not a party. I don't care who's there. It was in Bismarck, North Dakota, and Nadine and I were dealing with a young lady. And this is a sobering thought. She was a Catholic young lady. And as Nadine and I were pointing her to Christ, we said nothing against Catholicism. We only said Jesus Christ and pointed at the Bible. And she makes this statement. She says, if this Bible is right, then I've got many relatives that are in hell right now, grandparents and even a parent. And she said, that is extremely difficult for me to say. It was more than just saying, I recognize I'm lost and I'm needing a Savior. For her to say she was lost was to say that the same thing my parents did is what I've done and my grandparents did is what I've done and their parents before them is what I've done and if what I've done is not going to get me to heaven, then they're not in heaven. And that was a major bother to her. And the only thing I could say of anything to her was, was what I'll say to you here in just a few minutes, that they're in hell, but they don't want you there. Though they be in hell, it is no consolation for somebody you love to come and be with you in hell. That is no consolation. If there's any consolation in hell tonight, friend, if you have a loved one, if you have a friend that's in hell tonight, if there can be any consolation for any comfort in hell to them, it would be if you did not come there. Because they love you so much, they would not want you to experience the torments that they're experiencing. And so that would be the only consolation that there could be. I look into verse 23. And he said, he lifted up his eyes being in torment and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham. Somebody asks me, who in the world is Father Abraham? Now, that's a good question. 
I'm going to give you the two possible theories that it is. And I'm only saying theories. I am not saying that I know for sure. Some try to say that's really making reference to God himself. If that be the case, that's fine. Some try to say it's Abraham, meaning Abraham that was the father of the Jews as we would know him today. And if that's the case, then this man's even praying to the wrong person. He still does not know how to get to heaven. Abraham cannot get you to heaven. Nor can your grandpa get you to heaven. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone can get you to heaven. Jesus Christ is the only one that can escape hell for you. Notice in verse 24, And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. Two reasons why God will never allow that to happen. First off, there'll never be so much relief in heaven, uh, in hell, as one drop of cool water on the tongue that's on flames there'll not even be that much relief. Secondly, there'll not be so much pain in heaven as the tip of a finger being burned by a hot tongue. God's not going to permit either one of those to happen. He's not going to tolerate heaven. Now, as we come into verse 27, I'm going down a few verses, but I want you to note in verse 27, this lost man that's in hell, and it said, then said he, I pray, then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldst send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. The second time we've heard hell called torment, but I want this to be understood, that there are people in hell today that wishes that God would allow somebody to go by their family's house and to tell their brethren and their parents and their loved ones, don't come to this place. He's pleading with God. He's asking God, send the soul winner. I want it to be clearly seen in verse 727 that he said he's in hell. But he said, I pray. When was the last time that you bothered to pray for a lost soul? I mean, this man's not even saved and he's praying for lost people. He's praying, God send somebody. God tell somebody. And here's a lost man in hell praying for somebody to tell his loved ones. The two things I'd ask off that is, is when was the last time that you prayed for a lost person? And secondly is I wonder if somebody has prayed and asked God to have somebody go to their loved one and God has put it on your heart to go to that person that's in hell, their loved ones, and you haven't bothered to go. It's getting pretty serious. This thing of hell being in torment. If we went into Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, and fear not them which kill the body but are able, are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Boy, it's serious business. It's serious business. Now I know somebody says, oh, hell's just the grave. Listen to me real careful. If hell is just the grave, then all of us are going there. And that does not have any backing by Bible. That has no backing by Bible. Let me make this statement that it's, it's extremely impossible to believe or to think that there is no hell and believe this Bible both at the same time. They contradict it. 
You've got to say, I'm just not going to be a Bible believer and think there's no hell, no flame in hell. Or you've got to say, and I don't care who says there's no flame in hell. Or you've got to say that the Bible's right. There certainly is. Now let me ask another question. How long will hell last? That's a real good question. In Mark chapter 3, and I'm not turning there, but I'll, I'll read it to you. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 29, the scripture said, but he, shall bla- he that, but he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Eternal damnation. Now I tell people that salvation, God says it's eternal life. Here God says this is an eternal damnation. What a tragic thing that is. Now, the second, next, thing, next thing I'll deal with is who goes to hell? Who goes to hell? Matthew 25, 41. God has all of mankind divided into two groups. He has the lost people on the left, saved people on the right. He calls them the goats on the left, the sheep on the right. And he says unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. But he takes this, he said, Prepared for the devil and his angels. There's five things that are just a terrible, terrible thing about that. To hear God say, Depart from me. What a horrible thing to hear God say. The most wonderful voice that could ever be heard, the voice of Christ. And to hear that voice say, depart from me, the God of all blessing, the God of all comfort, the God of all counsel, the God of all peace, the God of all that we would ever need, and that God saying, depart from me. What a terrible thing. What a terrible curse for him to say, depart from me. Second thing, depart from me, ye cursed. Now you can take God's name in vain all you want to. Somebody else can do something, and if you want to be wicked enough, you can step back and take God's name and curse somebody with it. I remember it was right on this grounds. That was about two to three years ago, shortly after you had all the witches roaming around that wanted to come and go to church with you. And I remember I was, uh, I was somewhere in the, in the building, and somebody came and got me. It was a Saturday afternoon, and they said, Brother Snarley, can you come out back here? And so I went out back, and here stands this man with a fist full of money. And when I walked up to him, he is shooting against Jesus Christ. He's saying that you folks with this church have got it all wrong. You've believed a lie. And he's saying that to people, some of the soldiers that are of this place, they were shooting basketball. He's saying that you guys are crazy and you're wacky. And here I come and I'm listening to him. And I said, mister, you're about the world's biggest hypocrite that I have ever seen in my life. He said, what do you mean? I said, you came here and borrowed and, and begged for their money. And after you got the fistful, you turned around and shoot against their God and shoot against the people that have uh, standing on this property that God has built this stuff with the money of himself through these people. And you begged their money and shoot against their God. I said, you're about the world's biggest hypocrite. If I were you, if I had any, any backbone about myself, I'd either shut my mouth or I'd give all these guys their money back. He kind of hung his head a little bit. wasn't long. Boy, he started dishing the money back out and gave them all their money back. But as he was getting in his car, he stopped. He points his finger right at me, and he issued a curse at me and said, within three days, and I forget what it was. But it's been three years, and to this point, God has been gracious. Isn't it a wonderful thing that there is a God in this world, and He is a wicked one? But isn't it a wonderful thing, those of us that know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that He's more powerful than the wicked one? Oh, how I thank Him for that. Oh, there can be people that will issue a curse. But the greatest tragedy, if you're lost this evening, that you'll have, 
is when God himself issues a curse to you, depart from me, ye cursed. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. There's no end. Tragedy number three. I don't remember if I said there was five or four points, but I'm only coming up with four right at the moment. Prepared for the devil and his angels. And the reason I say that one's a tragedy is because God prepared heaven for us. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I shall come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. He's got a prepared place for the devil. He's got a prepared place for mankind. And if you go to the point that you end up having to go to hell, you're going to a place that God never prepared for you. To have to say you'll never get home. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. So who will go to hell? Well, the scripture bared out when he said, Depart from me, ye cursed. He had divided the lost from the saved. Those that had rejected Christ to those that had received Christ. And he's speaking to the Christ rejectors. Depart from me. John chapter 8 and verse 24 says it this way. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. If ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. And if you die in your sins, you're going to descend into hell. Well, how do I not die in my sins? Go to Jesus Christ. He bore your sins for you. He took your clothing of filthiness and your clothing of sin, and then He will robe you in righteousness so that you do not have to die in your sins. For 12 that have called on Christ to save their souls this week, Christ will come and has come if they were sincere from their hearts. And he took their sins. Actually, they were already taken. And their sins were washed in the shed blood of Christ. That's a done deal. But they received it. And they do not have to die in those sins. Is that not something that's spectacular? Sinners in the hands of an angry God has this quote, and I'll just read it. If we could speak of them and inquire of them one by one whether they expected when they were alive and when they used to hear about hell ever to be the subjects of that misery, we doubtless should hear one and another reply, No, I never intended to come here talking about hell. I had laid out matters otherwise and thought my schemes good. I intended to take effectual care. I've got this next portion underlined talking about the as if we were interviewing a person in hell did they expect to end up there when they used to hear about it such as tonight you're here under the under the preaching the preacher's preaching on hell do you honestly believe if you're here without christ tonight that there's coming a day that if you keep on that you're going to drop into hell and the person would have to say, no, I don't believe that, or else you'd do something about it tonight. Well, here's what, what the preacher that night said. He, said he, was, he was giving some kind of an interview through this way. He said, but it came upon me, talking about death, unexpected. I did not look for it at all at that time. And in that matter, it came as a thief. Death outwitted me. God's wrath was too quick for me. Oh, my cursed foolishness. I was flattering myself and pleasing myself with vain dreams of what I would do hereafter. And while I was saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction came upon me. No, lost friend, I'm convinced of it this evening. You don't plan on going to hell. How do you know that, preacher? 
I'm just being real frank with you. If I were in your shoes, lost friend, and I knew and I believed within my heart, I'm going to hell, I wouldn't even be waiting till the preacher was done. I'd be down on an altar right now for fear I wouldn't even make it to the end of the message. Oh, but you don't fear. You don't have enough of a belief within you. You think to yourself, I can make it another ten minutes or five minutes. I can make it if I'm going to get saved five minutes to that point. You may very well, but you're gambling with your soul. I'll ask a question as well. Who holds the keys to hell? Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18 says it this way, And I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. One day I got to thinking what a terrible sound it would be. Christ has the keys of hell. What a terrible sound. I guess I would deal with what a terrible sight. To stride into the very presence of Jesus Christ and see him holding the keys of death and hell, of hell and death on his hip. And as I come to his presence, the one that I've rejected and said, no, I'll have nothing to do with him, I can do it my own way. And all of a sudden I see the one I rejected holding the key to a place I never want to go. What an awful thought. What an awful thought to see him reaching for the keys. What an awful thought to witness Christ walk to the gate of hell, insert the key into the keyhole, and turn the key and unlock the gate for you, friend. And as that gate comes swinging open and to have Christ gather you up and to cast you into hell itself, what a terrible sound it would be to hear the gate of hell squeaking on its hinges as it goes thudding back shut and to hear that key turn in the lock eternally, locking you in hell, which will later be dumped into the lake of fire. What an awful sound and sight. But then the joy that day as I thought about that, that flooded my soul on what a blessed sight to stride into the very presence of Christ Himself, the one I received as my personal Savior as in, May, in, in September or October of 1973, the one that I gave Him my life and trusted in Him to be my Savior and the forgiver of my sin and the lover of my soul and to walk into His presence and see those keys of hell on His hip and realize that the one who saved my soul will forever hold those keys and that gate will never open for me. Hallelujah. What a God. What a God. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11, if you would look at it is the reason I have preached this message this evening. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11. 
is the reason I've preached this message. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Friend, this evening you've come to this sanctuary. Maybe you came to see somebody have a wonderful conclusion to a wonderful week at camp. But you've come into a room that somebody's concerned about your soul. I'm frightened for you to think that there might be somebody in this body of people that is without Christ only one breath away from the hell that I've preached about. And because I know that there is a Lord that should strike terror in your heart and definitely He strikes it in mine for you, I've been trying to do my best to persuade you to come to Christ. He's your only hope. There is no other hope. Acts 3.19 says, Repent ye therefore and be converted. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 and 4 says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again from the dead the third day, rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Let's bow our heads.